Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Emily Gernan, a reporter at the Pioneer Press in St. Paul who covers courts and does a pretty great job of it. Emily's a pretty outstanding reporter, and I enjoyed talking to her. And if you enjoy this week's episode, which I think you will, I hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes for the high price of nada. But for now, enjoy the talk. I've been covering courts for about seven years, and I mainly concentrate on Ramsey County courts. Ramsey County is the county that the state capital's in, St. Paul. So I just have to go up the street a block, and I'm there. Sometimes I do appellate court and um, just general legal issues, too. Is that something uh, you wanted to do? Is that something you, like when you were a baby and were thinking about what you wanted to be? No, not that long ago. <laughs> um, when I was in journalism school, I had this idea that I wanted to write for magazines, which was completely unrealistic and and by the time I got out of J school, I was no longer thinking along those lines. Um, but when I was here, I got hired at the Pioneer Press as general assignment reporter. And then a couple years into that, my uh, colleague, uh, Shannon Prather, was um, going to take maternity leave, and she was on the court's beat. And I thought it seemed like a really fun beat, so I uh, applied for it and got it. Has it been a fun beat? Oh, it's been a great beat. I love it. It's hard. It's um, long hours, and um, it's not uh, always... Um, it's hard to do everything the way I would like to do it, I guess. In that sense, um, what I mean is sometimes you uh, want to be in three different courtrooms at once, and that's obviously not possible. And sometimes it's difficult, be, uh, based on our schedules, to cover an entire trial. And so then you risk missing some important pieces. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in the courts, obviously, it's sort of like the highs and lows of human experience. I mean, you have people who are victims of um, violent crime, their family members have been killed, um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of emotion in court and a lot of drama. So I guess that's one of the things I like about it in, in it's in a very compact space, in a sense. So all the action is pretty much going to happen right there, in that room. And so as long as you're there, you know, being on time is half the battle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you remember the first trial or the first court hearing you ever covered? I don't remember the first court hearing because I'm sure it was back in California when I started, when I was starting out. Um, I've done a lot of different beats, and for a while I did civil courts for uh, the Contra Costa Times, 
So it was probably during those years. Uh, and I don't, I don't remember what that was actually. Yeah. Well, do you, um, when you first, when you were doing the civil courts, um, did, was that, how different is that from the criminal court? Well, right now I do both, although the civil ends up being a smaller portion of it. Um, though I should say nowadays we're doing so much of this, um, you know, the priest lawsuits, sexual abuse by priests, and um, one particular lawsuit that's been um, resulting in a lot of this new information coming out from the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. Um, so that's become a larger part of my beat. Um, but it, yeah, in general right now, I've been doing more criminal in the last several years. Civil courts are different in the sense that um, I would say more of the drama takes place in the paperwork than in the courtroom. Um, and you know, obviously civil proceedings have to do with um, disputes uh, of various kinds. Uh, and they they move much more slowly than criminal courts. <clears throat> so you have to wait a long time for anything to happen in the civil courts. Basically, we're covering uh, the filing of lawsuits. That's most of what we do when we cover civil courts. What made you want to get into journalism? I had been working um, for public radio and TV out in San Francisco. And... Um, I was in basically PR and marketing, and uh, KQED in San Francisco had a really active um, producing team, and so um, I would be writing about some of the shows that our station was producing, and so I'd be talking to the producers, and and they'd be telling me about their show, and um, you know it was always really interesting, and there come came a point where I just started thinking, you know, how hard would that be really? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, And I didn't really have an interest in producing TV or producing radio per se, but I knew that I could, you know, I wasn't that much less smart than some of those people who were doing those shows, and I could do journalism myself. And so I ended up going to J School at Berkeley, and... Um, when I started out, I remember um, I, my advisor and I were talking, and I think he may have asked me a similar question, you know, why do you want to be a journalist? And I said, well, you know, I want to I wanna make some changes in the world, basically. You know, kind of the... <laughs> the um, the do-gooder? The, the do-gooder, yeah. The I want to save the world. And, and he, he really just outwardly scoffed at me. <laughs> and he said... Well, you're not going to learn how to do that here, you know. Basically, this is a this is a straight program. You're going to learn how to do, you know, the um, balanced news kind of thing, etc. And and I did, you know, and I have a lot of respect for that kind of approach. But I still think that um, it's uh, perfectly legitimate, and in fact. I know that that is behind a lot of what I and a lot of my really well-respected colleagues do. You know, we do see things that that are wrong and bad in the world, and we want to we want to at least enlighten people 
about what's going on, if not, you know, actively try to change things. Have you been in touch with that person at all, with that advisor? Um, do you send him your really. do-gooder clips and say, <laughs> here you go? No, no, although, um, you know, he definitely had another side to him. This is Bill Drummond, by the way, and he's done, he did a lot of radio stuff. Um, he did some stuff for NPR, and I think he's retired now, but... Uh, I, you know, I respect him a lot. And in fact, he gave me some very um, heartwarming advice at another point when I was already out of school. And it wasn't too many years later, but uh, I was seeing another classmate of mine, you know, kind of rising in the ranks a lot faster than I was. And um, I think one, one day I, I sort of tossed off an, an email to him that said something along the lines of, you know, what does she have that I don't have? And uh, he wrote back and he said um, something that always stuck with me, which is that um, everyone is a mixture of steak and sizzle. And, you know, and essentially, I have the steak. You know, maybe she has more of the sizzle, but I have enough steak. <laughs> and I really liked that, you know. So that went a long way towards uh, my accepting of my own, you know, strengths as well as weaknesses, I guess. There wasn't a part of you that's like, let's get some more sizzle? <laughs> Good question. Um, I guess. You know, I, I think obviously there are always, um, there's always an aspect that we can, um, there's always an aspect of uh, improving how we present ourselves. And that's, that's certainly very important. And yes, I, you know, I, I try to improve on that too. Yeah. Was that like a two-year program or something? It was, uh, it was a two-year program, yes. Mm -hmm. Did you, um, was your first job in California? Yes. Was that just straight uh, civil, uh, the civil courts, or was it something before no. that? No. Well, I had, actually, I had three internships. <laughs> and the reason is because I got my first really small internship at this paper called the Watsonville Register Pajaronian in Watsonville, California. It's probably about 90 miles south of San Francisco. It's a little bit south of Santa Cruz. Tiny, tiny afternoon paper. I don't even know if they exist anymore. Um, so I did that for one summer, and then... Um, what are you covering it, a paper with such a long name? <laughs> I was covering the school board, I think. I was covering... Um, I was covering for somebody who was on a leave. And then... And that was between my first and second years in J school. And then I um, finished my second year, and I got an internship at the Valley Times in Pleasanton, California, outside of San Francisco. And that's owned by the Contra Costa Times group. And um, I don't really remember what I was covering there. <laughs> and then uh, after that, I got um, a temporary job at the West County Times. I think it was another, you know, covering for somebody kind of thing. 
and then from there, um, then I think I got, well, I, I went an extra six months because I got a, a joint, uh, I got a concurrent master's in Latin American studies too. So then when I was done, I got done in December, and that's when I got um, an opportunity to go to Chicago on this three-month internship from January to April. And then... Uh, Is that at, at the Tribune? At the Chicago Tribune, yeah. Um, which was rather horrendous. <laughs> Although, <laughs> I learned a lot there. <laughs> what was so bad about it? Um, the culture, I felt, was really... Um, hard-edged and kind of mean and um, I had grown up in Minnesota been out in California California is really laid back compared to um, um, more the east coast and I discovered that Chicago seems really east coast to me compared to Minnesota even though it's really not farther east <laughs> at least not that much but I, I, I found it um, it was a kind of a tough city, and the people at the paper were um, not warm, and um, uh, sometimes difficult to work with, <laughs> and uh, didn't treat the interns very well. This was many years ago, <laughs> just for the record. For the record, this was the, this, oh gosh, this was the spring of 1994, <laughs> but I worked really hard and I got some I got some good stories so in that sense yeah is there That's any good. particular good story you remember from your time at the Tribune um you know I did a lot of breaking news kind of stuff I did um I did store there were a lot of fires I did a church fire story um I did a story about people slipping on the ice because it was a horrible winter did a story about a guy who um, got killed when a piece of ice the size of a microwave oven fell from the Neiman Marcus building on top of his head, and yeah, killed him. He was just standing right on Michigan Avenue, and um, and I did another story about housing inspections or something that was pretty good, but I don't remember exactly. Do you remember if you wound up going to the scene of the the guy who had the ice fall on his head? Yeah. Were you there like right after? No. Was he still... No. I wasn't there right after. Actually, there was a recent, uh, com completely unrelated, but uh, a church, this old church, uh, mm. had a gargoyle fall off and kill someone recently. Really? She's really awful. Really sad. I don't know if it was a gargoyle or a piece of a gargoyle, but it was wow. it was a big stone. And uh, that's that's something that makes you wor worry about skyscrapers a little bit, I guess. Yes. Or well, tall buildings. I'm convinced that... I was back in Chicago this last winter, and I'm convinced that's why they have those signs everywhere. Beware of falling ice, don't they? Uh, Along Michigan Avenue? I've you don't work downtown. Some. But, yeah, I saw lots of those signs. <laughs> <laughs> but that was very sad, yeah. Uh, so... You're you're in a newsroom with mean people, and uh, you're pretty young. And uh, is there a point in these early days of your career where you kind of that like is there like a come to Jesus talk with yourself about do I actually like this the news business? 
Have you ever had that? Oh, I have that a lot more now than I did then. <laughs> Not that I don't like it. Um, no, I really didn't. I, I loved reporting, and I still love it. It's just a difficult way to make a living. But from from just doing it, it was something you enjoyed? Yeah, it was always. Yes. Sometimes I have to kind of get out of my um, normal um, introvert style. Uh, but once I do, you know, I'm... I think I'm, you know, I'm really... I'm really enjoying it. So, what was your next step after the mean newsroom? I just kind of kick out of calling it that. <laughs> yeah. It's not so bad now. Oh, that's good. Oh, and I'll but I'll say one more thing about the Chicago Tribune because every time I think about that, I think of this memory. There were flying cockroaches in that building. <laughs> no. I am serious. What's a flying They cockroach? were like four inches long, and they were flying. I swear to God. It was horrible. <laughs> were they uh, friendly cockroaches? Um, are any cockroaches friendly? I think there are cockroaches that are probably friendlier than others. <laughs> so I think there are cockroaches that are just trying to get by in the world, and then there are cockroaches oh. that... Mm. No, I, don't, I haven't given it that much thought. That's gross. It was really gross. Um, it's only happened a couple of times, but that was enough, believe me. <laughs> I was glad to be out of there. <laughs> is that, uh, How long has it been since you thought about those flying cockroaches? Probably oh, a while, right? No. Or every day? <laughs> <laughs> every time I think about the Chicago Tribune, I think about flying cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so after 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 the flying cockroaches, the so co- flying cockroaches, the meat <laughs> newsroom. Then I came back and I got hired on at the um, West County Times again for uh, a permanent job, and uh, I covered city government in Richmond, California, which was. Um, pretty cool job and that was a small newsroom so we had a lot of fun there really nice people (laughs) were you good at it right uh, when you were young at news uh i felt like i was pretty good at it um i wasn't sure about sort of negotiating the what should I call it? Like the schmoozing aspect of it. And um, there was a guy from the San Francisco Chronicle who would occasionally come into Richmond and just scoop the hell out of me, and I'd be really pissed off. And <laughs> I wasn't sure how he was doing it, you know. And I, I think he was doing it by just schmoozing, schmoozing people. And, and I think Don't it, they call that source building? Yes. Are we talking about okay? Yes. We're talking about the same thing. We are, but I hadn't quite mastered that at the time, <laughs> and so um, I sort of wondered, you know, how he was doing it. But I, 
I think that that really is it. And I think a lot of it has to do with just kind of logging time, putting in your time, and having people see you at a particular place and know that you're interested in things. You know, and then you start getting phone calls and um, people come out from behind their desks and come and talk to you. So, yeah, never underestimate the importance of that. Did Does that guy know that that it used to bug you that he scooped you? I don't know. Like you never told him? No. Hey man, stop scooping me? Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously you wouldn't say say it that way. And I wouldn't. But, it would have made him really happy. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it, that That is the worst feeling is getting scooped, right? By In your a, own backyard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a good feeling. It is. No, it's not a good feeling at all. <laughs> That's why... Uh, you try to be the scooper, not the scoopy. Right. But so, um, how long were you at that paper for, covering Richmond? Mm, I think I was only there about uh, maybe two and a half years. I got hired um, for a very short stint at the main office of the Contra Costa Times, and that was my civil courts thing. Um, and then I got um, a friend of mine who had been with me at Contra Costa, got a job as an editor at the San Francisco Examiner, and so he sort of paved the way for me to get over there. And that's how I got my job there. And um, and that was great. That was one of my favorite jobs ever. I was just a, I was general assignment. Um, but a friend of mine and I, another reporter and I, got into kind of a mini beat of covering the... Um, single room occupancy hotels in San Francisco and kind of all the corruption that was involved in those so um, we used to go the examiner is um, was and the chronicle is adjacent to it and still in the same area it's right it's south of market in San Francisco and it's kind of right in the um, it's adjacent to a pretty bad area. Um, and, and there are a lot of these old hotels that, I mean, we're talking old, like 100 years old at least. And you'd go in there, and literally the, there'd be marble steps going up, and there have grooves in them from all the people walking on them over all those decades. Um, but there was this one guy that I visited, and... Uh, he was a heroin addict, and he was this 56-year-old um, Jewish guy, very affable, had a walker because he had some kind of hip problem, was in and out of the hospital, but every day he would go um, on his walker and go to one of these freeway entrances, and, um, you know, he had his sign, and he would collect his 60 bucks that he needed for his his hit of heroin that day and he would go and buy his heroin and come back and shoot up and so one day he said well do you want to come watch me shoot up and I said sure and I would bring him stuff like coffee and donuts and occasionally cigarettes even though I felt bad doing that but, you know <laughs> better than heroin yeah and he would laugh and he would say oh I'm, a, I'm an addictive personality I gotta have my sugar and my caffeine and my you know nicotine 
and his room was just I mean disgusting you know it was a the sink had probably never been cleaned since he'd been living there it's this little tiny sink and then he has a mattress and it's gross and of course there's no bedding on it because he doesn't bother to put anything on it and and so I'm sitting on this mattress while he gets out his stuff and he melts his little rock of heroin and he puts it in the syringe you know and then he ties the tourniquet thing around his arm and his arm is just I mean it's like one mass of scars and he shoots up and 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 he had been in really bad shape he's like to the end of his where he's starting to go into withdrawal because it's been too long since he had his last hit and he's going <laughs> as he's walking in his walker trying to get back to his room before he shoots up so then finally he um, he shoots up and then he just sighs and he goes God loves me that was for him you know that was God loves me because he got his hit of heroin and it was just ugh I will never forget that. You know, it was sad. And it was it was a real eye-opening experience. And then because he had talked to us, um, the owner of the hotel tried to evict him. And, um, of course, we were up in arms. And so we told the supervisor, Gavin Newsom, who ended up later being mayor of San Francisco, um, hey, you know, they're trying to, you're threatening to kick this guy out just because he talked to us. He didn't even give us his full name or anything. So Gavin Newsom personally went to this hotel and said, no way are you kicking this guy out. And so he stopped it. So um, that was pretty cool. What was the story that you wrote? It was basically... um, It was a profile of this guy and his life. And, and the state of these hotels. We were doing kind of a series of these um, stories about these hotels and how bad they were. Um, and we went into other places where, like, a young couple would be living and there's so much soot on the window that you can barely see out. And they'd have their little baby in a bassinet and the baby was being crawled on by roaches. And, you know, I mean... These were really gross places. So, watching yeah. the guy uh, inject heroin was that something? Was that a spur of the moment thing? Was that something he brought up and you said I talked to my editor about? Do you remember? Because no. that's, that's not the type of thing you see very often as a journalist. You know? <laughs> no, it isn't. Uh, I think he did bring it up, but I. I thought, well, why not? I mean, and it, you know, it's not my job at that point to say, well, don't do it. He's going to do it. Right. So, um, yeah, no, I, I guess I didn't, I didn't think too much about it except that I thought it would be something I should see. Was that, um, is that the only person you've ever watched do heroin for a story? Yeah. That's that's actually really, really an interesting anecdote. Yeah. You know, really sad. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. And that guy, you know, 
he didn't, he wasn't living for anything else. That was his life. You know? And he's almost certainly dead now. Yeah. On that happy note, <laughs> what was, uh, so that was, that, and that's kind of cool about the Gavin Newsom thing. But um, what else stands out to you from there? From the examiner? Yeah. Is that your stop before um, the Pioneer Press? or? No. Though I will tell you one other thing. <laughs> it was a, one of my most painful episodes in journalism happened at the Examiner because um, there was... Uh, this was during a time, and it's still going on, uh, but, of course, there's a lot of gentrification in San Francisco, and the mission was kind of a center of that at the time. And um, so there was this one guy who took a pseudonym of a, uh, a famous, I think he was Ukrainian or an- anarchist, and I'm not, I can't remember the name at the moment, um, but this guy who was an activist assumed this name. And so he started putting up these flyers all around the mission district about, you know, uh, yuppies getting out of the mission. And um, then, so that there was a lot of, you know, there was tension around this. And then um, cars started getting keyed. And so there was some vandalism going on around this too. And this one cigar bar who that, that had come in to the area was threatened in some way and um, Nestor Machno that was the guy's name, Nestor Machno the pseudonym <laughs> and um, so we were doing some stories about that and uh, then at one point this group, it seemed like a group was putting put an ad into our paper about uh, kind of a counter demonstration that they were going to have, you know, like sort of the the yuppies getting up in arms and fighting against these people coming in and knocking their way of life, <laughs> which was weird, you know. We thought, yeah, this is really strange, but let's look into it. And so I was looking into it, and I was trying to call the number on this ad, um, you know, for more information, call Mark or whatever. And, um, you know, I was trying and trying, and I was leaving messages, and I never got a hold of anybody. And um, nevertheless, we ended up, I ended up writing a, a story in the Examiner about the fact that this demonstration was going to happen. And um, so then the very next day, uh, in, the, in SF Weekly, in the alternative paper, um, the editor had a uh, his op-ed piece or his you know his main editorial for the week started out with, "Thank you, Emily Gernon. Thank you so very much." <laughs> I could kill that guy to this day. Um, <laughs> Do you remember so it was all it was, was a. Um, somebody 
Van Mecklen? Yes. Yes. It was all a spoof. It, it was it was totally to get us. It was to spoof us, and they they just they went ha ha ha. Look how gullible the mainstream media is, you know. Right. This Emily, she never even got a hold of a live person, and yet they did a story, and and they just made hay with that that thing. Uh, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, in a sense. Uh, of course, I felt horrible, which I never told him. You know, I, I never gave him the satisfaction of um, hearing anything from me about it. Sure. Uh, and but that was a that was a bad day for me. <laughs> Is that has that fueled a lifelong hatred of alternative press? Oh no! Oh no! Not at all! Not at all! But uh, you know, I I think I mean obviously he made his point. Um, but I thought it was kind of unfair. Um, I mean, they set out to deceive, you know, which is something that I wasn't trying to do. And I was really, uh, you know, my intent was good. And their intent was just to get me and laugh about it, basically. So I didn't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That was a good paper in that era is the, mm-hmm. the SF Weekly. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Still does some good stuff sometimes. Yeah. But And, and Bay, Bay Guardian was, um, you know, I I respected them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the – I would be – I would feel bad not to ask about the uh, – a case that you wrote about, mm-hmm. the uh, – um, I'm forgetting the name, but the the Toyota driver. Oh, Kuo Fun Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's a big thing that you did, right? <laughs> you know, as I, as several more years have gone by, um, I've thought that's probably the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. Well, for the so. for the person that doesn't know that story. Yeah. So. Um, there was a guy who was driving um, a Toyota Camry with his family uh, June 10th, 2000, hmm, let's see, 2007, maybe 2009. I don't remember the year exactly. It's funny how no. time blends in. Yeah, it at, does. At 2006, while, right? maybe. Anyway, um, this happened in St. Paul, and... Um, he was taking an exit off the freeway, and um, he couldn't stop, and he said his brakes weren't working. He had um, about five of his own family members in the car, and um, there was there were uh, some cars lined up at the stop sign at the end of the freeway exit, and he crashed because he couldn't stop. He crashed into the back of one of these cars, and immediately killed two people, um, a 10-year-old boy and um, the kid's dad. And um, another, there were three, there were, yeah, three other people in that car. And one little girl who was about seven ended up dying a year and a half later. She had been paralyzed. So it was directly related to the crash. And then the two other people were injured. Um, One was a teenager pretty severely 
And uh, so this guy ended up getting charged with crim- criminal vehicular homicide and being convicted. And I covered the trial. It was actually the first trial I covered on my beat, I think. First full trial here. Um, and he hired a private attorney who um, argued during trial that even though Kuofeng Lee took the stand and said, I was pressing the brake and I could not stop my car. My brakes weren't working. But supposedly the city had checked out the brakes on the car and the brakes were fine. They couldn't find anything wrong with them. So, um, Ku, um, so Kuofeng Lee testified, but then his attorney said um, in closing arguments that he had probably uh, accidentally stepped on the accelerator rather than the brakes, even though his client himself, you know, disputed that. So um, then a couple, so he was convicted and he was sentenced to eight years in prison, went to prison. Um, He had four little kids. One of them was born actually after he already got into prison. And um, this guy had been a refugee, had lived for something like 10, 20 years in a refugee camp in Laos, came over here, um, had not been here for a terribly long period of time, uh, but no criminal record whatsoever. And then, um, so a couple years went by after the crash, and all this stuff started coming out about the unintended acceleration problems with Toyotas. And I had not thought about it until one day I'm in my kitchen listening to NPR like I usually do in the morning. And I'm listening to one of these stories about the Toyota problems. And um, all of a sudden I thought, Kuofeng Lee. And wasn't he driving a Camry? And um, it hadn't occurred to me until then. So I came in here and talked to my editor and went in, we went in to talk to the, our head editor at the time. And we decided first thing to do would be to call his um, defense attorney. He'd gotten since then a new defense attorney for his, um, he got a new defense attorney for his uh, sentencing hearing. And um, so I called him, but I did not hear back from him. I kept calling him for over like a week. And, um, but in the meantime, we decided here that we would find out if the car still existed because what were the chances, you know, that the it was in the police impound lot, but we didn't even know if it was still around and what would they be able to do if the car was no longer around. So I made a call, a couple calls, found out, yeah, they kept the car. So the car is still in police custody. And then finally, um, uh, the attorney called back and, um, he said something about, well, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna maybe file something on this case. So um, it was a petition for post-conviction relief, and um, that got off the ground. And then um, they ended up getting affidavits from oh more than twenty people. They had people coming forward after I wrote my initial story saying, I mean, I had people calling me saying the exact same thing happened to me. 
and I have this kind of car, etc. So we we um, collected some stories and in, in the Innocence Project of Minnesota collected stories and, and the attorney did and then they got some help from an attorney down in Texas this big time you know, criminal defense attorney and um, they ended up getting these affidavits from people who owned either that very car that same year of car or the next year I think which had like the same engine or something and so um, one of the Ramsey County judges, Joanne Smith, decided uh, she would hear the she would have a post conviction hearing in August of that year, which was 2010. And it lasted a couple days, and um, they put all of these they put something like 20 people on the stand to tell their stories about their particular car and what had happened with their car, and they came from all over the country to do this, and. Um, it was compelling as hell. You know, they had this one guy, I think, who really um, got to the judge. He was a... I think he was in the National Air Guard or something like that. I mean, he flew these jets. And he said, I get trained to be in control no matter what happens. And I could not handle this car. And I did not know what to do, and I was freaking out. Basically, and so that was. Um, I think that, along with the fact that um, Kua Fong Lee's attorney, the judge determined that he screwed up. So, on the basis of um, ineffective assistance of counsel, and this this new information that was brought forward, she declared that he was. Um, that she reversed the conviction. And um, she had arranged it. Um, she was very concerned about this, and um, she really wanted to do the right thing. And so she had arranged it that um, she talked to the prison. He was in Rush City at the time. Um, and she talked to the prison, and she was going to arrange it so that once she announced it, um, all he would have to do, he wouldn't have to go back to Rush City. He would just have to go back to um, the county jail here in Ramsey, and just get checked out there, and then leave. And then he was going to be a free man. So, um, so she announced that he was he was done. And then the county attorney announced that they were not going to prosecute again. And so he walked out of jail about two hours later, you know, into the arms of his wife. And it was just the most amazing thing. <laughs> it's something you helped bring about. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. If people want to follow your work, because you're still covering trials, in fact, mm-hmm. you're on your way to a trial very right. soon, uh, what's the best way to do it? TwinCities.com is our website for the Pioneer Press. Are you on Twitter? And I am on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Emily Gurnan, just my name. Well, so that's easy. That's straightforward. It could it could be something like like flying cockroach hater or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.